The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. And just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Glorious. And good morning, Acts Church. Say a quick prayer, and then we will jump into the lesson for today. God, you're a God who continues to show up, who continues to encounter us here today. Lord, we pray that as we uh, continue our journey towards Easter, uh, towards uh, Good Friday, or towards the cross and ultimately an empty tomb, Lord, that we would be able to celebrate life uh, and life eternal. God, we say this all in your son's precious name. Amen. So we've been in a series called Encounters with Christ, and we've been using this time of Lent to really celebrate and really look at how people encounter Jesus and how in those encounters they were forever changed. Because no one is ever neutral to an encounter with Jesus. It either goes really well or it goes really poorly, but there is no middle ground, right? No one ever meets Jesus in the story and it's like, oh, he's a neat dude, and then just goes on their way. They either are drawn into the family of God, into what God is doing, or they hear Jesus' words and they're like, actually, you know what? I don't want any part of that God, and they end up heading in the opposite direction. We spent time with the disciples, we spent time with crowds, we spent time with young children. And today is kind of the beginning of the culmination of Jesus' story. He had essentially been traveling all around Jerusalem, circling it, in fact. His ministry had taken him all around the major city of Israel, but outside of a couple of quick pop-ins, he wasn't actually entering the city of Jerusalem. There was no public ministry happening there. But for him to really be the Messiah, for him to be the one that everyone was putting all their hope, all their trust, all their passions into, was this really the Messiah that God had promised for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years? He eventually had to go to Jerusalem. He had to show up. Because if he didn't do that, then he couldn't be the Messiah. There were too many promises in the Old Testament that tied the Messiah coming to Jerusalem with him actually being who God said he was. And so that's what Palm Sunday is all about. And the story starts off with this. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Now, if you were going to start a public platform for a ministry or for a job, or for a politician, how you start, where you start, right? We're seeing it right now. We've got a whole bunch of candidates up in Iowa. 
And, or they start in California, or they're launching their presidential campaign. It's a big deal. It's going to frame how you want everyone to see you, what you want them to think about you. And Jesus begins not by saying, hey guys, I need you to find me a war horse, right? He doesn't say, I need you to find me a chariot that is tricked out with gold and silver and bling, right? He starts off, he says, find me a colt. And it's kind of a funny story, right? Because he tells his disciples, I need you to essentially go into the town without asking anyone, and you're going to find a colt and a donkey. Grab them. Don't worry, it's going to be okay. And there's something we can learn there. When God sends us out, even if we don't understand it, it's going to be all right, and it works. They go into the city, they're, they're grabbing this colt, and literally someone asks, like, dude, why are you boosting someone else's donkey, right? And they're like, God needs it? Oh, okay, cool, you do your thing. Right? And so it all works out. But he starts off with this because he is saying, I'm a specific type of Messiah. I am a humble hero. He's not coming in here grandstanding. He's not coming in here with might and power. In fact, what he's doing is he's referencing something that the prophets had said 400 years before Jesus showed up. Zechariah 9, 9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It had promised the type of Messiah that was relatable, that was humble, that was relational. He starts off his public ministry, his grand entrance into the city of God, the city of David. And it's a big deal but it's a deal in which he comes in with the posture of love and servitude and grace, right? Then the whole city turns up. And we read through the other gospel accounts that the Pharisees would say, all of Israel, or all of Jerusalem, I should say, so the largest city in Israel, they all come out for this parade. They're all interested, is this the Messiah? Is this the one God had promised? Is this the one who will take care of us and who will provide for us and will finally redeem us? Because Israel had been hurting for a long, long, long time. Four separate empires had come and gone, and each conquered Israel over and over and over again. First it was the Babylonians, then it was the Assyrians, Persians, the Romans. They just kept coming. They had been slaves. They had been taken out, they had been beaten, and now they were subjugated under Rome. And God had promised, but I will send you a Messiah and he will liberate you. And he will bring back the gardens and he will bring back the towns. He'll make things flourish again. And so people were excited about this Messiah and everyone shows up. Scripture goes on to say, when they brought the cult to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. And they went ahead of those who followed and shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As Steve had mentioned earlier, Hosanna meant Lord save us or salvation. And it was a way of exclaiming praise. And we do this. I do this a lot. 
If you were ever to have the uh, poor chance to watch me play a video game, and my wife can attest to this, I am very vocal when I'm playing video games, right? There are a lot of grunts, there are a lot of screams, but when I win, I scream victory, right? I declare what has happened, and it is a shout of praise. It is a shout of exclamation, right? That's what they are doing. They are saying, God's here to save us. This is our celebration. This is our victory. He's here. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. David had been a king. He'd been the greatest king they had ever known. It's the lineage of which the Messiah was going to come. Hosanna, the Lord will save us in the highest of heaven. People are crying out. People are so excited about the salvation that's come about the Messiah who's finally here. For three and a half years, Jesus had circled Jerusalem. For three and a half years, people had heard of this guy who shows up and everything he touches is made better. The, the sick are healed. Those who have been cast out of the community find a new home. Religious hypocrisy is finally being called out. Hosanna, the Lord saves. He's finally here. And on Palm Sunday... The people, and this is everybody, they're convinced this is the Messiah. This is the hero. There's a really, 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 really big but after that. Four days later, those same people are going to demand of Pilate, crucify him, crucify him. What happened in those four days? How do you go from, this is our hero, this is the one we're going to put all of our trust, all of our hope in, to four days later, 96 hours, crucify him. We're done. What happened? Well, what we find in the story is Jesus is fairly busy in those next four days. And he starts deconstructing what type of Messiah people had put their faith their trust, and their expectations in. Because all of us, in our own way, like to build our own type of Savior, right? We want him to be stronger than us, better than us, but we still want him to be like us. Typically, our Messiahs, our Saviors, are people that are the ideal version of ourselves. And so that's what people were looking at. And there were these different factions that they thought the Messiah was going to be into. And they were competing, for sure, but they thought, well, he's going to slot into one of these sides. Right? And you see this as the story goes on. So the very first thing Jesus does is on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts, and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of money changers and of the benches and of the selling of doves. He would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he says, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it into a den of robbers. You see, the temple, the sacrificial system, represented all the peak religious practices of the day. All the ways people thought, if I just do this, God will love me. If I just do this, God will protect me. If I do these things, then everything is going to be okay. They expected doing the right thing would lead to good. 
Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we should go out and do the wrong thing. I'm not saying that religious practices are bad in any way. But when we put our trust in the practices, not in the God we're trying to connect with, it breaks down. So Jesus goes into the heart of religious practices and just starts tearing it all up. You guys are missing the point because these religious practices will not save you. There's a worship leader who I really loved, had some amazing songs. And recently her and her husband left the faith and she was doing kind of a post-interview. They said, well, why did you leave? And she said, well... See, me and my husband, we did everything right. We worked at the church, we served, we prayed, we did everything. And then God gave us a child with Down syndrome. He said, we can't believe in a God if we do everything right, he still does this. Because they put their trust in the practices and what they were doing, not in the God that they were supposed to be relying on, right? And that's going to happen to all of us. We're going to get hit upside the head with disease, with financials, with emotional stress, with family issues. We are constantly being buffeted by storms. And if we think our religious practices are going to save us, well, Jesus deconstructs that. So faction one goes out, but there are other factions that are in play, other types of messiahs people are looking for. Next come the Pharisees. Later, They sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity, that you aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. You teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. So they're just trying to butter Jesus up, right? They're getting ready to sucker punch him. They've got the trap all laid out, and this is what they say. They say, Is it right to pay imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a Daenerys and let me look at it. They brought him the coin and he asked, whose image is on this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God. And they were amazed at this. You see, the Pharisees represented religious political power. And their main goal was to get God to like Israel again so they could overthrow Rome, so they could create their own political, religious power structure. And so they thought Rome was the problem. Rome was the bad guy. And if we worked with Rome, we were going against God. And so that's what this whole trick is about. Because if he says you should pay taxes to Caesar, then Jesus is saying Rome's okay. If he says, don't pay taxes to Caesar, ironically, then they could actually execute him for rebelling against the Roman law, right? So they think they got him tracked, but Jesus turns it on and goes, guys, you're missing the point. Give Caesar what's Caesar's. I don't need it. But give to God and the kingdom of God and the Messiah of God. Give that back to him. And so the religious political faction doesn't work. Well, then what about the secular political faction? That's the Sadducees. You see, the Sadducees, they believed that the Old Testament was mostly moral code. It was their culture, but it wasn't about an active God who still moved, who still protected. Essentially, God helps those who help themselves, so they wanted to work with Rome. They wanted to use the political uh, levers 
to see Israel flourish. That's the type of Messiah they wanted to advocate for. So the Sadducees, who they say there is no resurrection, came to him, being Jesus, with a question. And they say, see, essentially what they're going to do is they're going to find apparent contradictions in the Old Testament. They say, teacher, Moses wrote that if a, mother, if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife with no children, the man, must weary the, the man must marry the widow and raise up the offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same for the third. In fact, none of the seven brothers left any children. Last of all, the woman dies. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Right? So they're trying to find contradictions in how God sets up the world. And Jesus leans in and goes, are you not in error because you don't know the scriptures? You don't believe in the power of God. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given into marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, and this is where he drives the stake into the coffin. He says, Have not you read the book of Moses in the account of the burning bush? God said to him, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but God of the living. You are badly mistaken. He looks at the Sadducees. And he deconstructs the Messiah that they want. Then last, but certainly not least, his last public ministry opinion comes back in the temple. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They gave out of their wealth. She, out of their poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. I always find it funny that on our currency in America, we put, In God we trust. That's really appropriate because currency is the God that we trust in, right? Our bank accounts, how much money we make, our jobs, that, that gives us security. That provides us stability. That, we think, provides us power. And Jesus looks and says, guys, the heavenly economy is not the same as the earthly economy. Again and again and again in Jesus' ministry, he shows up, and he says, God will do more with your little than he will do with the wealthiest of much. That's the, that's the story of the loaves, right? The story of the feeding of the 5,000. He's like, we should feed these people. And the disciples are like, it would be a year's wages. His response is, well, what do we have? And a lone boy brings together his lunch pail, some bread and some fish, and Jesus is like, perfect. And Jesus takes that little... And he does so much. There's different factions in our world, right? And we can all follow in. It's not just four. Whether we think that our religion and the practices of it will save us, not the Savior. Whether we think political power, whether it be secular or religious, will save us. Whether we think it's finances. 
We start to construct our own God. And it leads us to places that are so far away from where he wants us to be. And that's why Jesus deconstructs them. Because taken to their own logical conclusions, our own broken thinking leaves us in some really broken places. Some really broken mindsets. I was trying to think of an example of this to drive this home. And there was a quote from a very prominent Christian religious leader with a lot of power. And he was talking about why Christians should have more money. And his answer was this. I'm not even going to tell you who said it, because I don't, it's not about the ideologies. It's just about where it leads you. He says this. No, no, no. See, it went back. Anyway, a poor person never gave anyone a job. A poor person never gave anybody charity, not of any real volume. It's just common sense to me. That's where broken thinking leads you. It sets up a system in our minds that says worldly gain is real power. Worldly gain is what God wants. And clearly, he doesn't need worldly power. He doesn't need really worldly resources. Jesus' entire ministry is built around God is going to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. God will fight for you. God will sacrifice for you. That's what happens on Palm Sunday between now and Good Friday. He starts deconstructing who we think we need for a Messiah. And that hurts. That hurts all of us. It hurts me. It hurts you. It's so counter everything the world tells us. And yet it's the Messiah that we need. It's the Messiah that can promise daily bread. It's the Messiah that can promise presence. It's the Messiah that says, even though you've got broken thinking, I can fix it. I can restore it. I will redeem you. I will fight for you. Hosanna, God, save us. Hosanna in the highest. You know what happens to the palms from Palm Sunday? They get burned. We use these palms, the ones we use this Sunday, for Ash Wednesday. These become the ashes. The reason why we do that is because we have a part in the story. We were part of the crowds that said, we don't want that type of Messiah. We don't want that kind of Savior. That's why in the church season, then we take these palms and we're honest with God again and said, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Lord, save us. So we're going to end today a little bit differently. We're going to go into a time of confession, a time of repentance, a time to offer up our brokenness. The band's going to come up. We're going to sing a song to help us reflect on that. But then for communion, what I'm going to ask you to do is bring your palms with you. And ask God to save you. Hosanna, Lord save us. And then receive forgiveness. Receive God showing up and saying, I love you. I protect for you. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood shed for you. A new covenant, a new connection. Experience that salvation from a Jesus who still shows up, who still fights for his people. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you. 
a people who are broken, a people who are wrestling with all types of hurt. Lord God, we offer up to you all the different expectations we have that you're supposed to follow, whether it be our financial success or our family's purpose or a relationship, a job, whatever it is, God. Lord, we ask forgiveness. Lord, we ask that you save us from our own broken thinking. And then turn us to something beautiful. Lord, turn us to your face, to your love, to love for you and love for our neighbor. Lord, we say that's all in your son's precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at actschurchleander.com.